What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on is that nations of the world are meeting in Glasgow for the COP26 conference, the Conference of Parties, which is the great global climate change conference to follow on to the Paris climate meeting. It's happening on October 31st, Halloween, which is an appropriate date because they want to scare all of us into believing that the world is ending. That They don't want to scare us into giving us our candy. Yeah. I wish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'd be happy to give them candy. I'm not willing to give them most of my income to pay for all their climate disaster mitigation efforts. Danny, what do you think? So... I think that, as usual, when you have a U.N. conference, the goals are commendable, right? The intentions are good, but that's pretty much where it ends. I'm not sure I agree with that. Well, I think the intentions behind this to address what certainly is a challenge, I don't want to be hysterical about it, are wise. The problem is that's where the road to hell begins, is with those good intentions. And what strikes me about what is going to happen is that this is going to be a festival of yet-to-be-made and sure-to-be-broken promises, which is what every single UN climate change conference has been since the history of their beginning. And it is going to be an hysteria fest. It's going to be like one of those cult meetings in which the strange man in white robes and a beard surrounded by young girls stands up and says, the world is going to end all of you need to fill in the blank. Well, here's the problem is that I, I don't even grant you the good, uh, intentions. the good intentions because, number one, the world is not ending because of climate change. But it is a real thing. It's a real thing, Danny, but it doesn't pose an existential threat to humanity, as the climate alarmists say. John Kerry, the man we love to hate on this podcast. Exactly. (laughs) It doesn't pose an existential threat. It poses a challenge that we're going to have to deal with as this century unfolds, but it doesn't pose an existential threat. And the left is using the false claims of an existential threat as a lever to get us to adopt all sorts of policies that will destroy the free market economy, destroy economic growth, increase poverty around the world by denying people opportunities for development. And advantage the Chinese. And And advantage advantage the the Chinese, advantage the Russians, advantage the Iranians, advantage every one of our global adversaries. One of the great developments of the start of this century has been America's emergence as an energy superpower, as a fossil fuel energy superpower. We are, for the first time, energy independent. We surpassed just a few years ago Russia and Saudi Arabia as the world's largest producer of oil. We are the world's largest producer of natural gas. And this has given us both amazing economic benefits, but also national security benefits. And now all of a sudden, because we've basically announced that we are going to tax and regulate the fossil fuel industry out of existence, the number of oil rigs in this country that are producing oil is half of what it was in 2019. 
we've gotten rid of the Keystone XL pipeline, but green-lighted the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So it's even incoherent. And we're giving up our position as a global superpower in energy. And oh, by the way, now that gas has gone up a dollar a gallon in the last year, Biden is going to OPEC and saying, hey, could you produce more oil? It's like, I'm sorry, if you're concerned about climate, does the carbon emissions from OPEC oil produce less carbon than American oil? No. And what these policies do is they ruin people's lives. People can't get their Christmas gifts. And we just had an episode of this with Michael Strain on the cost of trucking and transportation, empty shelves, all the rest of it. These are direct results of these policies. And it's only going to get worse if we continue down this road of insanity. And the inflation only benefits yeah. the suppliers who are outside this country. And it hurts the poor. Right. No doubt. One of the things that strikes me about this conference is the number of counterfactual hysterical statements and warnings. And we talk a little bit about this with our guest coming up. But I guess it's only through Apocalypse Now that you can get people to even contemplate the kind of assault on their pocketbook, the kind of assault on their lifestyle that these folks are proposing. One of the things that I enjoy immensely every single year on the occasion of Earth Day is our colleague Mark Perry's effort to go back to the first Earth Day and look at the predictions that were made then about what was going to happen. So we're talking now about 51 years ago, and a lot of the issues that we're going to be talking about at COP26 are predictions for the end of this century. So we're talking about 79 years from now. This is 50 years ago. And I just want to pick out some of the really, really accurate, (laughs) accurate predictions that were made on that first Earth Day, stealing from Mark. Harvard biologist George Wald estimated that, quote, civilization will end within 15 to 30 years i.e. 1985 or 2000, unless immediate action is taken against problems facing mankind. All right, then. We're in an environmental crisis that threatens the survival of this nation and of the world as a suitable place of human habitation, Washington University biologist Barry Commoner wrote. The day after the first Earth Day, the New York Times editorial page, which has, I think, a now almost pure monopoly on always being wrong, said, man must stop pollution and conserve his resources, not merely to enhance existence, but to save the race hmm, from intolerable deterioration and possible extinction. Those are just the top three, but they get worse and worse and worse complete darkness, the end of food production, the end of life as we know it. Needless to say, none of us were going to live to 2020 if, in fact, these foretellers of doom were right. And, of course, they were wrong. Well, here's the problem with the foretellers of doom is the unintended consequences of that. So, for example, the data show that 45 percent of people 16 to 25 in 10 countries surveyed are so worried about climate change that it affects their daily life and functioning. Almost half of young Americans believe humanity is doomed and two-thirds think the future is frightening. As a result, they are not having children because they are afraid to bring children into a world that is doomed. And so, therefore, they are not producing the taxpayers to pay for all the government spending that they want to do to mitigate global climate change. You can't well, do I will say that Prince <laughs> Harry and Meghan Markle said they're only having two children in order to protect the planet, and that's a good thing. <laughs> if you're concerned about global climate change and you want to spend all this money, you better have four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten children to go out and work and produce the tax revenue that will be needed to pay for all these government programs. Look, we are focused on the wrong thing. 
It is impossible for us to stop or significantly impede the changing climate. What is possible for us is to adapt to the changing climate, to come up with measures to mitigate the effects on people. Technology is what is going to get us out of this, not government action. The climate change is unfolding slowly over a period of a century. Everyone's talking about the impacts we're going to have in 2100. That's 80 years from now. Think of how technology has changed in the last 80 years. I mean, in 1941, 80 years ago, People didn't have air conditioning. There was no internet. Black and white TVs, if you had it, and it was the most expensive thing in the world. Now, all of these technologies that we have that have made our lives better, that have reduced deaths because we can actually... Now we can all watch color TV. We can watch color TV <laughs> in, our, our... in our air-conditioned apartments and homes, right? The technologies that are going to unfold, the acceleration of technological development is infinitely more in the next 80 years over what it was in the last 80 years. We are going to invent technologies that we can't even dream of today that are going to mitigate the impact of this climate change. The solution is not to impede the economy by forcing people to stop using fossil fuels sooner than these technologies are available. It's to invest in those technologies and speed that development and free the free market economy to produce the solutions just as it produced the solutions to all the problems we've had in the last 80 so years. This is really, this is really important. Unlike so many things you say, this is is really important. Because if you think about the last 80 years, what has happened? Yes, absolutely. Temperatures have gone up. And what has happened at the same time? We have less poverty. We have less hunger. We have less disease. We have less illiteracy. We have less war. And all of those things, which are the products of scientific advancement, the products of development, the products of evolution are also things in some instances that have caused global warming to accelerate because development, whether it's electricity, it's getting air conditioning to places in Africa, to hospitals in Africa where they need it, it is getting warmth to people who are in cold climates who need it. All of these things have benefits as well as costs. And it seems like we are incapable of having a human normal conversation about costs and benefits, not only of the problem, but also of the solutions. What has unleashed all of these positive developments is the free enterprise system. It's globalization. It's free trade. It's all of these things that the climate change left opposes, right? Before the pandemic hit, There was a study from our colleagues at Brookings that said that for the first time in human history, from man's rise from the swamp to our arrival in the stars, to paraphrase Ronald Reagan, the first time in human history that the majority of people in the world were either middle class or wealthy, not living in abject poverty. For most of human history, most people in the world lived in poverty or on the edge of poverty. And apparently a lot of the people in this administration miss those people living in poverty. What has made that possible to change that is the free enterprise system. It's economic development. It's creativity. It's innovation. Coincidentally, it happened when socialism collapsed, when the Soviet Union collapsed and people began adopting a free market economies. Now, at the apex of this development, people on the left are using climate change as the excuse to replace it with cradle-to-grave welfare state that is going to remodel our homes for us and is going to give us electric cars. And it's going to mire the people who need things most in poverty. So I want to talk about another aspect of this that drives me absolutely batshit. But 
I want to interject because you made the comment about socialism. Another one of Mark Perry's throwback lists was a prediction made by a Texas University professor in 1970. Demographers agree almost unanimously on the following grim timetable. By 1975, widespread famine will begin in India. They will spread by 1990 to include all of India, Pakistan, China, and the Near East and Africa. By the year 2000, or conceivably sooner, South and Central America will exist under famine conditions. By the year 2000, 30 years from then, the entire world, with the exception of Western Europe, North America, and Australia, will be in famine. But Mark notes... The prediction of famine in South America is partly true, but only in Venezuela and only because of socialism, (laughs) not because of the environment. I'm laughing and I'm making fun of these people and their insane and arrogant predictions. But I mean, it's worth noting that it is where government tried to engineer that is one of the few places in the world where people are now starving. What has stopped that famine from happening? One, free enterprise, but two, climate change. Climate change, the warming of the planet, has led to the greening of the planet and green areas of the planet growing by the skies of the continental United States. Times two. Times two. Mm -hmm. I, I was underestimating it. So it's precisely the thing that they want to stop that has led to less famine and less... I think there are uh, pluses and minuses, and that's the kind of discussion we ought to be having. We need to recognize that there are pluses as well as minuses. But the thing that... we take advantage of the pluses and we mitigate the minuses. It's not that hard, actually. But the thing that makes me completely nuts about this is I'm sitting here with our packet of research in front of me, and there's a, a category. What are the aims of COP26? Well, okay, climate finance, carbon markets, coal. Oh, but China and India aren't going to do it. Methane. Oh, but China's not going to do it. We're going to have emissions reduction targets. Oh, oh, but China and India won't agree to it. Oh, we're going to have these ambitious plans that all of us have to put forward. Oh, but China and India aren't part of it. Let's say that all of this is right, that all of this crazy talk is totally correct. Guess what? Without the biggest emitters, without China and India, the number one and the second biggest countries, most populous countries in the world, the countries that are developing most rapidly, the countries that are increasing their emissions at astronomical proportions compared to the United States and all of the developed world. Without them, this is nothing more than a joke. So our guest today is somebody who I think has really done an incredible job in trying to simply introduce a note of balance into the conversation about climate change and into the sort of insane ambitions that have been articulated by nations in the run-up to COP26. Bjorn Lomborg is the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center. He's a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Lomborg was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. He's the author of numerous books, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet, and many, many more. He's just done incredible work and has educated certainly Mark and me today. Here's our interview. Jorn, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. So we are hearing more and more that the world is coming to an end, that climate change presents an existential threat to humanity. But you point out that many of those predictions discount human adaptation to climate change. Tell us what you mean. Yeah, so fundamentally, you're absolutely right. Everybody is very, very scared. We have studies that show a half of humanity now think that the world will end, or basically that mankind will go extinct because of global warming. 
But it's incredibly important to understand that that's not what the best science tell us. That's not what the UN Climate Panel tells us, and it's certainly not what the data shows us. So if you look, for instance, on the number of people who've died from climate-related disasters, so floods, droughts, storms, wildfires, and extreme temperatures, we have good data for that back from about 100 years ago from the International Disaster Database. And what's happened is in the 1920s, so 100 years ago, on average, about half a million people died from these disasters every year. The last full decade, the 2010s, only 18,000 people died every year. So reduction by 96%, and of course, at the same time, global population quadrupled. You've heard a lot about people dying in 2021. So, you know, you heard about the heat dome in Canada and the Western U.S., about the floods in Germany, the floods in China. There's probably a lot you've missed in, for instance, India that have had at least five. If you add up all of those and extend it to the rest of the year, it'll probably end at about 6,000 people dying in 2021. So just take a moment to reflect on this. We used to have about half a million people die. In the 2010s, it was 18,000. This year, it's 6,000. So the numbers tell a very different story from what you think you see on TV, where you see endless repeats of the next hurricane and the next flooding, and you're being told they're all causing us to go towards extinction. And why is that? Not what the data tells us. Basically because we're much better able to deal with any catastrophes that happen. Actually, most things are not increasing, certainly not in the way that you think. We are seeing more heat waves. We're also seeing fewer cold waves, and that's important because many more people die from cold than die from heat. But we're also, for instance, not seeing more hurricanes. If you look at hurricanes that hit the U.S., it's not such that they have hit with ever greater frequency. They've actually slightly declined. And that's also true for strong hurricanes since 1900. So what we're really seeing here is mostly an impact of not much increasing or not at all increasing disasters from the climate but a huge increasing our ability to deal with these issues. So basically, we become much more resilient. And that's what we miss in the climate conversation. We think that this is just about an increase in climate problems, and then we're all going to be doomed. No, it's a possibly slight increase in some of these indicators on climate, but a dramatic decrease because we're much more resilient. So, Bjorn, the proximate cause for us sitting down and chatting today, other than it's nice to get a dose of reality every now and again, is the upcoming COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference that's taking place in Glasgow. Now, I'm listening to you talking, and I want to quote to you from a New York Times editorial. The New York Times says, the main issue there, they mean Glasgow, will be whether the delegates will, here's my emphasis, listen to the science, look clearly at what's happening in the world around them, and then, here's the hard part, provide action plans to meet their aspirations. It sounds to me from what you just told Mark that we're not really listening to the science, at least not all of it. But I'd also like to hear from you about the aspirations, quote unquote, that, for example, President Biden has laid out and that other countries have laid out for our climate mitigation efforts. There's a lot to unpack in this. So one thing I think New York Times is right to point out is overall, 
global warming will be a problem. Global warming is real, it's man-made, and it will be a problem, mostly because whenever temperature change, it will make the infrastructure that you built based on historical temperatures slightly inefficient. So, you know, both Boston and Miami are good cities for wherever they are in terms of temperature, but obviously if it gets much colder or much warmer, then both of those cities will be sort of out of equilibrium. That's the main reason why global warming is a real problem. But what they, of course, are also talking about, it is the end of the world, so we all have to cut carbon emissions dramatically right now. Now, first of all, it's not the end of the world. The UN Climate Panel in latest 2018 report, the 1.5 grade report, tells us if we do nothing against climate change, the net impact, if you translate all of the bad stuff that will happen, both economic and non-economic, if you translate that into money, it's equivalent to making each one of us about 2.6% less rich by the end of the century. That's not nothing, but it's certainly not 100%. The UN estimate that each person in the world will be about 450% richer in 2100 compared to now. So the impact of global warming will be that instead of being 450% as rich, we will only, and there's inverted commonness in that, only be 434% as rich. Yes, it's a problem. I'd rather live in a world where we're 450% as rich, but it's certainly not the end of the world that we will only be 434% as rich. That means we should think about smart ways to tackle climate, and we're not doing that. We're sort of going, let's go all out and say we want to go to net zero, but, and that was your point, this is going to be phenomenally costly and actually end up costing much, much more. Now, all of global warming, 2.6%. But Biden's net zero plan, according to one study in the nature, would end up costing just to the U.S. 11.9% of the U.S. GDP. So you'd actually end up paying much, much more to only avert a small part of the global warming problem that's 2.6%. Not surprisingly, that's a bad deal. Would it even be possible to stop or significantly slow global climate? If we did everything that the Biden and the Ocasio-Cortez wing of the Democratic Party wants to do, would it be even possible to significantly slow global climate change at an acceptable cost? Probably not in the way that we have gone about this in the last 30 years. So remember, the COP26 that's going to happen in Glasgow is essentially, you know, it's in the name, it's the 26th meeting. We've been doing this since at least 1992 in Rio, and we have been missing our targets. We have been overpromising and underdelivering for the last 30 years for a very simple reason. When you ask all nations to get together and promise stuff in the future that's really hard and cost a lot of money and <laughs> basically only going to help way out in the future for other countries, it's not surprising that mostly they just don't do this. So most of these meetings have been, let's promise lots of stuff and then you know not deliver later. And that's why the current approach by Biden and AOC, but also most other world leaders is just not going to deliver. But is it possible? Yes, of course. I mean, if we actually had technology that's cheaper than fossil fuels, that actually would reduce carbon emissions and be cheaper, obviously you could see much of the world cut its emissions drastically very quickly. There's two examples of this. So France 
switched over to nuclear power, and it's very hard to see exactly how much it cost them, but it certainly reduced their carbon emissions significantly. But perhaps more importantly, the U.S. had a fracking revolution around 2010, which delivered incredibly cheap gas. And that meant that you switched from coal to gas, not because you were worried about the environment, but simply because gas was cheaper. Now, it has that wonderful side effect. It actually only emits about half as much CO2. So the net outcome was that the U.S. in the 2010s, not because of Obama or Trump for that matter, but because of underlying economic incentives, reduced CO2 emissions more than any other country in the 2010s. So if you make the right innovations, sure, you can get everyone to switch. But unfortunately, that's not what we're focused on. That's not what COP26 is about. It's not about making innovations so that everyone will switch. It's about making everyone make incredibly painful promises that we then won't deliver on later. If we did everything that Biden has proposed today, how much would we actually reduce global temperatures? Well, if you plug it into the UN climate model, it turns out that if the US went entirely net zero today, so you know, 29 years earlier than what Biden has promised, it would only cut temperatures by the end of the century by 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit. It would be measurable, but just only. So the reality is this is not predominantly about what the US or even the EU or the other rich countries in the world do because most of the emissions in the 21st century will come from China, India, Africa, the rest of Southeast Asia, Latin America, countries that are now trying to lift their populations out of poverty and obviously have much greater priorities than cutting carbon emissions. This is exactly where I want to go. One of the things that drives me crazy in our normal foreign policy world is this conversation that we have as if we live only in a bilateral world, as if things that we do have no impact in other places. So if if we cut emissions and we go to solar, then temperatures will lower and it'll be just like a fairy tale, when of course it has other implications. I want to talk a lot about China, and I want to ask you as well about the developing world. But the first question that comes to my mind is one of the impacts of this. Let's say that we do work to stop with carbon-based emissions, and we move in part not to nuclear, which is obviously not the trend in the United States. We haven't built a nuclear power plant in a very, very long time. But if we go to solar, the top four suppliers of one of the key ingredients of solar panels, which is polysilicon, are in China. And not just in China, they're in Xinjiang. (laughs) This has real implications for, for example, the sanctions that we want to place on Chinese manufacturing in Xinjiang using slave labor a lot of the time. Just help us think through some of those kinds of issues when we talk about moving to net zero? I'm probably not the best person to ask about this because fundamentally, I'm just an economist looking at what's the economic impact of this. You're absolutely right. There's going to be other impacts. And very clearly, the fact that we want China so badly to be on board with our climate policies mean that we have to go light on them in a lot of other ways. So we don't you know, take up that they're not doing well in Hong Kong or that they're basically incarcerating the Uyghurs that they're possibly utilizing their ability to manipulate the prices and the markets of much that goes into both batteries and solar panels and to some extent into wind turbines as well. But the real point, and I think the real thing that will mean that this will never happen, is that the cost will be so great that 
Americans are going to say no to this way before you get to net zero in Biden's world. A new nature study shows that this will cost, as I mentioned, 11.9% of GDP. That turns into $11,300 per person per year in the U.S. by 2050. Now, remember, there's a majority of Americans that will not accept a $24 rise in their electricity prices to deal with climate change. So, you know, this is about 500 times more costly. There's just no way politicians are going to get reelected once those kinds of price tags start showing up. And I think that's the real reason why this will never happen, that we're simply asking for policies that are just phenomenally too expensive compared to what electorates are actually willing to do. And that, of course, is why I think this argument even ought to work both on Biden and AOC, because if you want to get to net zero or somewhere where we actually cut a lot of CO2, you have to find a politically viable way. And we haven't so far. We're simply trying to say something, well, we hope it works once people start seeing the bills. But of course, what you're actually seeing is once you start becoming cold, you just say, fire up those coal-fired power plants because I don't want to be cold. Oh, no, absolutely. You know, Mark always, Mark always makes fun of me because I spend a lot of time in Italy. I was just recently there and they're having a very, very cold autumn, probably affecting you as well. And I saw that the government has given permission to some of the northern regions to turn on their heat early. I haven't heard something like that since the Soviet Union. <laughs> Buildings are not allowed and individuals theoretically as well are not allowed to turn on their heat till a date certain in Italy dictated by the government. And the temperature that they're allowed to turn it to is also dictated by the government. I mean, WTF. (laughs) Wonderful, right? But of course, again, this is the kind of thing that governments actually fall on. And what I think most people forget is if you're going to get to net zero or anywhere close to some impactful climate policy, this is not about just squeezing it through a Senate that's 50-50 where you have a vice president that can vote it through. You actually have to get it through what 10, 15 Congresses and possibly even you know, six or seven other presidents. This is something that needs to be workable for the American population and likewise for the Italian population. And it's not when we're now talking about costs that will escalate into many thousands of dollars and many thousands of euros. People are just not going to stand up for that. So I'm never going to let Mark speak again because I'm, I'm so all fascinated right. by all of this. The follow-up question that I wanted to ask you when, you know, I asked you about polysilicates, it is the unintended implications. And one of these, particularly for the left, is, of course, development. I mean, warming and industry is a price of development. And this seems to be one of the implications of all of these efforts that is completely lost on people, which is the idea that we are going to turn to, for example, our friends in Africa and say, the last 50 years have been great for you, but we really can't accept the notion that you're going to continue to industrialize and provide people jobs and heating or air conditioning, vaccines or medication, development projects, roads. How does that part of this equation work? I think you're absolutely right. And this is why you will never see climate policies work globally as long as they're this expensive. Because obviously, Africans and Indians and Chinese are not going to accept to be left in relative poverty and say, all right, so you guys made it, you know, the US and Europe made it by using lots of fossil fuels, but we're not allowed to. 
I don't know if you saw Museveni, the president of Uganda, just wrote in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, basically saying this, if we don't have power, we can't lift our population out of poverty. And we're not going to accept not to be able to do that. And that's why you can imagine U.S., you can imagine a Europe somewhat emasculating themselves and saying, all right, we're going to go on something that basically leaves us poorer but colder, and we'll probably be able to carry our population along for a while. It's never going to work for the poorer countries. This is also why they're now starting to ask for $100 billion, or actually they were promised $100 billion back in 2009. They're still not getting that per year for obvious reasons. And now the conversation has turned to, well, should it be $750 billion per year or even $1.3 trillion a year? And of course, there's no way that you're going to have overtaxed Western democracies willing to give up that amount of money to hand over to poorer countries in order to let them go net carbon as well. So Bjorn, are we focused on the wrong thing in the sense that are we focused so much on trying to stop global climate change versus trying to live with global climate change? It seems like the effects of climate change, you know, everybody's talking a projection out to 2100. It's unfolding slowly. Technology is advancing rapidly in the world. I mean, if you think back 2100, that's 80 years from now. If you go back 80 years in the past, in 1940, air conditioning wasn't even widely used. The technological changes that have happened in that period, aren't we just going to innovate our way out of this problem if we just let the free market economy function? There's a lot of ways that we're focusing on the wrong thing. You're very right in saying much of scare scenarios that you hear mostly come true if people didn't have any technology. So when you hear sea levels will rise, which is actually an outcome of global warming, you also often hear, and everybody who's in their way will now drown or at least have to move. The recent headline in the Washington Post was 187 million people will get flooded and will have to move over the next 79 years. But what they forget is we have very good technologies to make sure that people are protected. 110 million people are right now living below sea level. Many of them you know in Holland and central London and New York and many other places. They live well because we know how to deal with sea level. It's actually very cheap and very effective. And of course, we will safeguard most of these people. It turns out that the actual number of people when you've taken into account adaptation is probably in the tens of thousands, not in the hundreds of millions. It's just really, really bad information. But we're also focused on the problem in the wrong way in another way. Remember, almost everyone is saying the way to solve global warming is to make grand promises of future cuts that we don't really know how to do. But the reality is every way that we've solved problems for humanity has been through innovation. So if you think back to the 1970s, a lot of us worried a lot about the fact that there was not enough food in the world. There was a lot of people starving in Africa and Southeast Asia and elsewhere. And the sort of standard climate policy answer to that problem would be to say, well, let's have everyone eat less in the U.S. and Europe, and then we'll send that food down to the third world. But of course, that would never work. What did work was we got the green revolution. We got a technological breakthrough that meant that for every acre you grow, you can now produce two or three times as much food. And that's what basically made sure that everyone is now much better fed, especially in the developing world. We need the same innovation for climate. Imagine if you could come up with a technology that was cheaper than fossil fuels and emitted no CO2. In some ways, you already did that with the fracking revolution in the U.S. That was halfway there. 
If you come up with cheaper technology, everyone will buy and will be better off. That's why we're focusing way too much on promises that won't work and way too little on investment in green energy technology. I think another important aspect of this is that we always are looking at not just the implications of climate change and the risk without understanding mitigation and adaptation, it is that there are also benefits. One of the things that fascinated me in your writing was that you talked about how there's this huge focus on heat deaths. And you note that while there are going to be more people who are impacted by heat, there are fewer people, many, many outnumbering them who are going to freeze to death. And there are other implications as well. The fact that there's more CO2 in the atmosphere has meant that we are seeing more green lands and more green Mm. means more arable land. It means more livable land. All of these things are certainly worthy parts of the conversation. Completely ignored. Why are they ignored? And and, and you're, you're absolutely right. Well, because we're trying to make a catastrophic scenario here. Fundamentally, I think you can't convince people to spend thousands of dollars on very inefficient policies unless you basically tell them, or you and your family is going to go extinct. It's very clear if the end is nigh, we should throw everything and the kitchen sink at this problem. But if it's a 2.6% problem, as the UN Climate Panel tells us, we should be careful not to throw more than 2.6% at it in order to fix it. And so the reality here is, You can't have this more sensible conversation because if you get sensible, you also start treating climate change as a normal problem, namely one where you say, sure, it's a problem. How much will your solution cost and how much will it fix? Turns out that most of these solutions will fix very little of the problem, but they will have enormous price tags. That's not the way to go. You need to have small price tags, large fixing. And that's, of course, why you can't talk about the fact that as temperatures rise, You'll see more heat waves, but you'll also see fewer cold waves. 500,000 people die every year from heat, but about 4.5 million, so nine times more, die from cold. And so certainly in the coming decades, it's very likely, and certainly it has been, so the last two decades, higher temperatures actually mean a net saving of lives because more people die from heat, but many fewer people die from cold. We need to know these things because that means climate change is a problem, not the end of the world. And that means we can start having a rational conversation. I think the most important thing when it comes to climate change is to get people to realize this is not the end of the world. So stop talking about either you fund all my projects or we're going to die. No, it's just like all other problems. If you fund these projects, we have to ask how much did it cost? How much did it help? And unfortunately, most of the projects that we're funding right now just simply don't cut it in terms of cost and benefits. Aren't there economic benefits to climate change? I mean, things that we're not even thinking about, like, for example, the Northwest Passage, which is frozen most of the year. The impact on global trade of having the Northwest Passage open up for an extended period of time could have massive implications for global trade, couldn't it? There are absolutely a number of great benefits from climate change. But, and this is important to emphasize, there are more disbenefits for more people most of the time. So I think we're very sure that there are more disbenefits. That's why global warming is a real problem. And it's mostly, as I started out talking about, this is simply a disequilibrium outcome. It's the fact that we built our societies to an existing temperature, and now that temperature has risen. And so our societies are slightly mismatched and has a significant cost. So the point here is 
Not to say there's no problem, but it is simply to say it's not the end of the world. It is, like many other problems, something we need to start talking about. How do we fix it? How much of it do we fix? And how much does it cost? One of the things I think we often fail to understand is it turns out that when you actually look at the data, I just talked about the heat and cold deaths, that there'll be more heat deaths, fewer cold deaths. But actually turns out that typically in many rich societies, there are fewer and fewer heat deaths. Why? Because it's very cheap to protect yourself and your family against heat deaths. It's basically buying an air conditioner. Whereas it's very expensive to protect yourself and your family against cold deaths because you have to heat your home all the way through winter better. And that's typically fairly expensive, which is why in most rich societies, we see fewer heat deaths, but actually more cold deaths, despite the fact that temperatures go up. And a very large part of that reason is because we're increasing the cost of energy because we're trying badly to fix climate change. So as you also mentioned earlier, there are certainly indirect effects of climate change that actually end up making the world worse because we pay so much for these ineffective solutions and we end up with a lot of bad outcomes that are second order and that most people didn't predict and certainly didn't talk about. My suggestion wasn't to say that climate change was a net benefit to society. It was simply saying that the negative impacts, we're going to be able to take measures over time as it slowly unfolds. Technology is going to allow us to adapt and to deal with those. And we'll also have an opportunity to take advantages of some of the benefits like warming temperatures, less cold deaths, economic and trade benefits. There's all sorts of things that we can actually take advantage of to increase GDP as well. So we can mitigate and adapt and take advantage of some of the unexpected benefits as well. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And that simply emphasizes you think global warming is going to be very expensive because you constantly focus on sort of the worst predictions and with no adaptation and no sort of human ingenuity. But if you include all of that, the costs are going to be a lot less. And as you point out, some of the impacts are actually going to be benefits. We need to be able to tell people that and get away from this end of the world and talking about this is a normal problem like many others. How do we fix it smart? That's the kind of conversation we need to have is about just behaving rationally, normally, believing the science and responding to it in a scientific way rather than motivated by bumper stickers and hysteria. But of course, everything is about bumper stickers and hysteria these days, unfortunately. Thank you for being the voice of reason. Thank you for taking your time and joining us. It's been a wonderful conversation. It's been terrific. Thank you. Talk to you guys. This has become about politics and about 21st century religion. You know, you and I have talked about this before. The decline of religion in people's lives has not meant that people no longer talk about God. It has just meant that they search for other gods. And climate change has become a religion for all too many people in the United States and Europe and in developed Asia. And that is just what has led us down this path of almost laughable ridiculousness in which we go again to a conference and make a series of promises that we have no intention of keeping. Because the history is, from every single climate change conference that has happened, that we have never met the promises that we made, not just as the United States, but as a global community, as Hillary Clinton might say. Why would anyone believe them going forward? 
I mean, the amount of money that they're talking about spending and want to spend on stopping something that can't be stopped and in the process driving our economy into the ground. I mean, we're just seeing the early impacts of this right now with all the supply chain problems that we're having, with the energy prices that are going up, with the inflation that is happening. If you like what you've seen in the last eight months, you're going to love when AOC is in charge of our economy and climate change is the be-all and end-all of every economic decision we make because they're going to drive our economy into the ground. They're going to drive our economy into the ground if they succeed. They won't succeed, but they will lie to us all along the way. I thought you guys might be interested in some of these stats. In 2019, which was the last year that there was full data, 81% of the world's energy supply came from fossil fuels. If we all fulfilled our current climate promises, which, as I just said, is a pipe dream, the International Energy Agency estimates that fossil fuel use would make up 73% in 2040 renewables mostly produce electricity. They don't actually move transport. They don't produce heating, and they don't help you produce steel. They don't help you produce fertilizer. In addition, electricity is not mostly green. Solar and wind generates 8%. Get this, in fossil fuel use, the greenest continent is Africa. Do you know why? Because more than half a billion Africans lack access to electricity. Is that okay? Here's the stat that really jumped out at me. California uses more electricity on its pools and hot tubs than all 44 million inhabitants of Uganda consume in total. That's I think that's a fine note on which to end. That's, that's it's the model for us. So let's all go back to using wood and uh, renewables like wood and dung and cardboard to power the American economy. The future of the American economy is dung, Danny. Well, I'm afraid that you that may be closer to reality than you think. <laughs> All right. On those fine elevated notes about hot tubs and dung, goodbye, everybody. Have a great week, and thanks for joining us. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.